Hi, and welcome to The Mean. I'm Ryan Huber, and with me, as always, is Nick Seagraves. Hey, Nick. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Nick, I just wanted to thank you for sending me your your cold all the way from Chicago to Los Angeles. That was sweet of it you. It was no problem. It was a very expensive and reluctant Uber driver who did it, but it worked. <laughs> he got here. He shook my hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got a nice head cold with some uh, intermittent fever sweats. So You're so uh, lucky. I know. You're so, so lucky. Yeah, I feel like it's really worked out in my favor. I get to, um, you know, have an excuse not to clean my house all week. So that's, that's I'm, you know, living in squalor now. Okay. Yeah. Um, so if you're joining us for the first or second or 15th time, this is episode 15 of The Mean, and it's entitled Justice System in which today Nick and I will be discussing the justice system, in particular the United States court system and how that works and some of the cool kid things about it and some of the bad things about it. But before we get into that, um, we'd really appreciate if you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or one of your favorite podcast apps, just so that um, we know that you're listening. And if you want to leave a review on iTunes, it's also helpful. And if you want to tweet us topic recommendations or, you know, critiques, questions, comments, things of that nature, you can tweet the mean, the mean pod is actually the the Twitter, or you can tweet Nick at N I C underscore underscore S E G R A V E S. Uh, Nick checks his Twitter about once every six months. So, Mm-hmm. I will get back to you as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Before we have another president, Nick will get back to you. And Absolutely. you can tweet me at Ryan M. Huber. I think that's all one word. Or you can email us at themean2015 at gmail.com. So you can get in touch with us a lot of different ways uh, and let us know that you think that we're dumb or you think that we're awesome. But uh, You're dumb. Yeah, you can just say you're dumb. You can just literally, and like, we're fine with that. But mm-hmm. for today, Nick, uh, since I'm sick this week, um, would you mind kind of introing what we're talking about, kind of laying out the broad the broad strokes of uh, the United States criminal justice system? Yeah, I mean, I think this whole topic is something we've talked about before, but was brought on by a very you know, indie, not very popular Netflix original series um, called Making of a Murderer. Um, Yeah, I don't think there's an of in the title, but yeah, you're pretty close. Yeah, just Making a Murderer. Mm -hmm. Is that it? Yep. Hmm. I don't don't really know if I, I don't really know. How do you feel linguistically, like just grammatically about the removal of the of? I don't really know if I like that or not. Making a murderer. I guess so not removal of the A. So just making a murderer rather than the making of a murderer. I guess it's just a a, a snappier title. Yeah. It's more like gotcha. Which is good. You thought we were going to use one of those tiny words. What are those? Are those called? That's not. Of is not an article, is it? No, it's a preposition. A preposition. We're not going to use a preposition like above or before no, never we would never do that this is going to be a prepositionless title mm-hmm. making a murder there's there's a gerund in there 
Well, we got that going for us. Um, I guess. Let me so, back what, to what that. is that about? What is what's, <laughs> what's making a murderer about? Since we've since we've staked our claim yeah. on that being the core of our episode. Um. Well, I know we did did an episode on spoiler alerts, so I'm not gonna go crazy on the spoiler alerts. But let's just say it follows a certain individual. I his I am completely blanking on his name. Do you remember his name? His name is Stephen Avery. Yeah, Stephen Avery and his family, mm-hmm. and kind of his reputation in the small town. Mm-hmm. Let's call and, it Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. Yeah, let's just call it that. Um, and kind of how the police. It involves, first of all, it involves two murders. So that's where the title gets me a little confused. Um, but I guess it's murderer. Um, but it involves two murders. But they, it, the documentary kind of implies, and the state, I guess, finally agrees with him, that he was not guilty of the first murder. That well, the he first was one for. was not a murder. The first one was a brutal assault and rape. Oh, yeah. yeah oh, my god! Because the lady survived. She was left I'm, for dead. I'm so sorry. I'm like out of it right now. It's totally fine. Um, but the first one, he got charged, put in prison. Spent all 18 that stuff. years in jail. Spent 18, you know, just like a small amount of time in jail. And then DNA evidence. Because that's what eventually gets him gets him out, right? Is like the DNA. Yeah, they're like, oh, yeah. by the way, this other guy who was kind of roaming around raping people and we knew about mm-hmm. it. And we were looking for him. Ends up it was him. And ends up someone tipped us off that it might have been him. And ends up that the DNA kind of proves that. And by someone who tips him off, tips him off that it was him, you mean like the guy himself did when he was in jail for another reason. Yeah, but also, also, yeah, yeah, someone had called one of the cops like about halfway through the first prison sentence and said, hey, you got the wrong guy, I think. And they're like, nah. Like, in a lot of ways, no. (laughs) Just like, nah, we got it. Um, He's going to be in jail for another lots of years, so don't worry about it. Yeah, like, don't worry. We got it. (laughs) And, and, And the people who have not seen the documentary should know, this guy did a lot of stupid stuff when he was younger. He's not... Yeah. He's not, like, the smartest dude in the world. Like, he... You know, he got mad at somebody and, like, drove them off the road. So, like, he's not a perfect princess. He He's done some things. Um, so it's not like this guy is the absolutely innocent. But he was innocent of a, of a rape and brutal attack that he spent 18 years in jail. And so when he got out, when he was finally vindicated, I think, what was it? 2000. I'm going to go 2004 or 5. Mm-hmm. When he gets out, he gets vindicated. Um, you know, he decides to sue the system for, I think, something like $36 million uh, for wrongful imprisonment, which, like, I think is a really great idea. If I lost 18 years of my life on a conviction that I consistently denied and I was denied um, certain certain appeals processes, then I would be pretty upset and I would probably want some some form of restitution. Um, I'd probably want a personal chef for the rest of my life so I could conserve those hours for doing other things. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's reasonable. 
But, uh-oh, someone else gets murdered in Wisconsin. So, a lady, someone else. Yes, yeah, someone, I mean, she's not the first person to get murdered in Wisconsin, so I yeah. guess you're right. <laughs> yeah, someone else gets murdered in Wisconsin. I mean, and, and who hasn't, really? And, yeah, if you haven't been murdered in Wisconsin, I really, just try it out. Yeah. It's a great experience. So, it's a lady named Teresa Halbach, and uh, she disappears um, she was taking, she worked for Auto Trader. This never would have happened in the internet era, by the way. Yeah. I mean, it was 2005 or something, but it wasn't like, like if she'd been tweeting all day, you know, mm-hmm. I've been like, we know where she is. She has, you know, an app that was tracking her and this is where yeah. she disappeared. Like the whole trial would be much less interesting. Yeah. It would well, like, also yes, her job, was. also her job would be gone. Yeah. Her job would be gone. Yeah. She like takes photos of people's cars to put them on like a listing yeah for like a magazine for a physical auto trader magazine as opposed to just people doing that on their phones yeah people doing it on an app on craigslist or cars.com or whatever yeah so yeah she wouldn't have a job poor Teresa. but either way um (laughs) well she wouldn't be she wouldn't be dead she she wouldn't be dead actually so her life probably would have been a lot better yeah, anyways, go ahead. Yeah, so she disappears, and, you know, one of the places that she had been that day was the Avery Auto Salvage, where Stephen Avery was enjoying his newfound freedom mm-hmm. and getting ready to sue the pants off of the Manito- Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department, and hijinks ensued. Oh, yes. Many, many, many hijinks. Sorry. Um, so search parties are, are, well, the County, because obviously anyone who would just like read three sentences from a newspaper about this case, they would know, well, obviously the County has ulterior motive to make sure that he's guilty. So they don't have to pay all this money. Yeah. They have 36 million reasons. Yeah. So the County is like, well, just to get us completely like, so you don't think that we're going to allow don't they get like a neighboring county to come in to do the yeah the county that teresa is from Mm -hmm. columet county um they come in and they do the investigation once the once teresa's car is found on the avery uh salvage lot property which is huge i mean they have thousands of cars maybe definitely hundreds definitely in the high hundreds of cars and and the car is found on the property and it's very kind of shoddily hidden by some boards and tree limbs. It looks like a child did it, you know, tried Mm -hmm. to hide this car, Um, which is one of the things we'll talk about in a little bit. Like they have a car crusher on the property where you can just destroy a car. If you want to destroy a car, you can just destroy it. Um, But it wasn't destroyed. It was hidden, tucked in a back corner of the property and the Avery's allowed the search party to come on their property. And lo and behold, a mother and daughter found the car after a few minutes of searching. Um, and then Stephen Avery, uh, was, was arrested and they ended up, uh, the police, as they start to investigate the property ended up uh, basically taking over the entire property and investigating for days upon days, upon days, upon days, many, many days, uh, while the Avery's had to go somewhere else. Because it's like the, the grandmother, grandfather, aunts and uncles, like a lot of people yeah. like lived in various little houses and trailers on this property. Mm-hmm. So during that time, as you brought up, Nick, the 
Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department because they had an obvious conflict of interest. Um, the lead prosecutor from Kalamut County says, said uh, they will in no way be doing the hands-on investigation. They'll be basically providing our officers with resources um, to back us up. And if we need anything, they'll go get it for us off property, but they won't be doing any investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, so what ended up happening from, as you watched it, Nick, what, what were some of the things that you noticed about the investigation? Yeah, well, there's, like, the big talking points that people bring. Like, I mean, because this is so popular, that I think the most obvious ones is that there were actual police officers there from Manitowoc County. Mm-hmm. Um, even though, and one of them is actually the police officer that was told about, the, as we were talking about earlier, the phone call that was like, hey, you have the wrong guy in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like 10 years earlier, like in 1995. Yeah, so like a guy who holds a considerable amount of responsibility mm-hmm. in that And he's suit. the one that, and or not him, but the other guy. The two guys, one of them, Lank is his last name. He's the guy that put Stephen Avery's DNA into evidence in the original case against him. Mm-hmm. So Lank has access to Stephen Avery's DNA and... Uh, Andy Coburn is the other one. He's the one that took the phone call originally about the, you've got the wrong guy. And so these, these two officers are, end up being really involved and do several sweeps of the property. Some kind of watched by a Calumet County uh, sheriff's officer and some just totally on their own, whether it was the garage, whether it was, whether it was Stephen Avery's trailer in his bedroom. Mm-hmm. And so they do search after search, after search, after search, like sweeping searches of everything. And, uh, lo and behold, they find bone fragments in the burn pit behind Stephen Avery's trailer. There, Teresa Hallbach's body, her remains. Um, uh, they, for several days or even I think months, don't find any bullets or anything. They find bullet casings, but finally, mm-hmm. like five months later, they find a bullet that you know matches what they need it to match. Yeah, they um, find no physical evidence that Teresa was ever in. Uh, the trailer until like the seventh search of his trailer, yeah. which isn't very big. And then they find it. They find mm-hmm. a key at her Toyota RAV4 key just by itself. And uh, some online uh, observers of this case have, have pointed out in the picture of her from not too long before that she had a set of keys. Like every human does that owns yeah. a vehicle and tries to get into a house. She had a set of keys, but that but it wasn't a set of keys that was found in Stephen Avery's bedroom. It was on the carpet in plain sight, next to a bookshelf, a single key with his DNA. I don't know how his DNA got on the key. <laughs> Just wrapped in hair follicles. Yeah, with his DNA on the key was found on the carpet, and that's one of the key pieces of evidence. Another key piece of evidence is they found check this out, they found four different blood smears of Stephen Avery's blood in the RAV4. I don't even know. How do you mm-hmm. get your your blood in four different places in a RAV4? Like there was like it was in one door and on a wheel well and then like the back and his blood. But, but get this, Nick. So there's like four blood smears of Stephen Avery's blood inside this RAV4, mm-hmm. but not a single fingerprint. Yeah, of his in the entire vehicle. I I just don't understand that. Yeah, so I mean, all this to say, without going into like 
the, the every minute detail, which once you start getting into it, I'm sure you had the same experience when you're watching it. It just, it just gets, it's seemingly endlessly complex. There's all these things of like... And tests that you think solve it, but then another expert witness is brought up to say, no, this test is yes. not really as Loctite as you think it is. Exactly. And it goes on and on. And, and his that, nephew that is boring. forced into yes. a confession. We yes. should talk about this part. All right, yeah. let's put aside all the investigative details and the fact mm -hmm. that sheriffs weren't supposed to be involved and were, the public was lied to. His nephew is basically pulled out of school multiple times by the police. He's 16 years old. His IQ is 70, which Nick is not high. No, no. that is not a high not. IQ. He's pulled out of school. He's questioned for hours without a parent or an attorney. How this is legal, I do not know. Mm -hmm. It basically, he's fed this information time and time and time and time again by these cops who say, if you just tell us the truth, you can go. And this kid is saying stuff like, can I go back to school now? Yeah. He has like no idea. Like my mom's going to come pick me up. So like stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. He's wearing like big baggy jeans in 2005. So that just like lets you know about that. Mm -hmm. Like Jinko type huge baggy jeans. And he's just, he doesn't know what's going on. They're, they're like, hey, everything's going to be fine. You're never going to get in trouble if you just tell us the truth. And they say to him like, who shot Teresa in the head? Like being like where he he's like, uh, and he starts guessing. He's clearly guessing. He's like, yeah. did you shoot? You know, like he's, yeah, he's yeah. trying to tell them what they want to hear. Cause they're, he's, they've been holding him for hours. The kid's hungry. He's not very smart. And they end up using his testimony. And then I think this is one of the things we need to talk about when we get to juries the once they get these bloody awful details which by the way were never ever corroborated by physical evidence about like a forced rape and imprisonment and it's Stephen mm -hmm. Avery's trailer and slitting of a throat and choking after the slitting of a throat yeah and shooting in the head and all this stuff and there's no no blood was ever found in his bedroom by the way mm -hmm. at all so after all these details and then later way later in the documentary he says that he read it in a book um called Kiss the Girls, which is a thriller. It's like a brutal thriller that was made into a movie. Mm. Um, they, The lead attorney basically shares all these details with a bunch of reporters, and they broadcast it on all the local news stations. So could yeah. you, like, like just with all this stuff going on, we have, there's so much to talk about in this particular case, but I want to kind of zoom out. Like, how is it legal to poison the witness pool with stuff like that? Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, what I was, I was going to say before we obviously needed to bring up the mistreatment of the nephew and how un, almost unbelievable it is that that would be admissible in a courtroom yeah. anywhere. Yeah. Um, but I mean, all of these, all of the weirdness and the things that don't make sense, it just goes to show you that there was something about the process of justice in this county that was not right. You know, like that's the whole yeah. point of the show. Yeah. The whole point of the documentary, I think a lot of people take it off as like, he was innocent. He didn't do the murder. He didn't do the first assault. He didn't do the second murder. Oh my God, this is a tragedy. I think the real, I mean, if he is innocent, obviously this is an unbelievable tragedy, but if he isn't innocent, 
I would still say it's an un... It's like the way that the Justice Department in that county, both the DAs and the law enforcement and everyone who was involved with it handled this case is completely... It, it's it's cruel. It's wrong. Yeah. And I'll just it's, say this. This is going to sound yeah. weird, but like even if he did kill her, mm-hmm. the way they went about proving that he did should make it so that he's not in prison. Yeah. Like, that sounds like a really weird thing to say. Obviously, if people are murderers, I think they should be in prison. But according to the rules of our justice system, this guy should not be in prison. Even if he did commit the murder, because they didn't prove in the way that you're supposed to prove yeah. that he did this. There were so many things that poisoned the process. There were so many ways that this could have been called a mistrial. Yeah. And um, I think the outrage would be even more if if this were like a trial in the South with white cops and a black suspect, like, I think, like, I, I think this would be on Nancy Grace. Is Nancy Grace, does she still have a TV show? I have no idea. I, I have no idea. But, but, or let's say Nick, that it was someone, you know, one of the people that we say have like, um, oppression tokens. Mm-hmm. Let's say it wasn't a white guy. Let's say it was, you know, a native American lesbian or something like someone who, okay. someone who's really oppressed anyway in our, you know, in our social, context what do you think this this story would be like if all this stuff kind of got arranged against one of these people who are identified as a group of of oppressed people well i think it'd be a much more it'd be a much more Sexy. I know it sounds awful, but it would, like, no, it would be. It would be on the yeah. news way more. Yeah. Than by sexy, I don't mean like ooh, that's such, that's such an erotic situation, but like sexy in terms of it would be sellable. That's a narrative that most people are already mm-hmm. willing to hear, and there's like a very strong sense of like justice behind it. Like most people would say, like, wow, that's really unjust. And I think that, I mean, this is a side note, but I think that shows how powerful this documentary is because it makes you, makes a majority of people sympathize with a, what most people would call white trash, barely functioning, straight man with a history of sort of domestic violence, kind of, and like, just not a great... Yeah. No one would pick him out of a crowd as like this person deserves mm-hmm. our, the most sympathy out of everybody. But yeah, like this guy's not getting a movie made about him if this case doesn't just scream like injustice. And I will point yeah. out that statistically speaking, especially black males are much more likely to be arrested, indicted, given longer sentences, you know, like like, like our justice system has not treated black people fairly or poor people fairly when compared to like rich white people. So I'm in no way trying to say that um, this is made up, you know, that the whole um, that the, the sense of having of um, certain groups being oppressed, um, that's, it's not made up. It's for real. There really have been real injustices done to groups of people, especially black men in the justice system. Um, but I'm just saying for this case about a white guy to have caused such an uproar, there must yeah. be, there must be something there that a lot of people identify as just, I mean, he, 
he's not the I mean he's kind of charming in a way but he's not like he's not mm-hmm. he's not a naturally lovable guy he's just kind of a average dude who lives on in a trailer in Wisconsin yeah. I mean there's nothing like you said there's nothing sexy about his story other than that this mm-hmm. happened to him he's kind of a dingus yeah you know he's a kind of bit. a dingus a little bit but I think the the reason why I wanted to talk about this on a podcast was the the type of responses that have come from this, you know? So the, the original, the like impetus for me thinking that this deserves a whole episode is that I've heard some people say like, well, he's obviously innocent. They have mm-hmm. every reason in the world to convict him. So they don't have to pay that money. This is just another example of like the military, the militarization of police the corruption of giant bureaucracies, you know, blah, 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 X-Files, blah, 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 blah. And then, and so, like, and look at how stupid our criminal justice system is, period. Yeah. Like, as as a general rule of thumb. I've also had kind of, like, the reaction to the reaction people who are like, well, obviously he's guilty, and what about this, and blah, blah, blah. But I think what was really interesting to me was it inspired a lot of people my age, your age, and in that weird area who aren't in law school and aren't political scientist people to discuss what due process is yep. and, like, why our justice system exists mm-hmm. the way it does to begin yeah. with. And the presumption of innocence. Yeah. So I thought we could just talk about... I mean, I, I'll just lay all my cards on the table in the beginning. I think the tragedy of making a murderer isn't that our system is corrupt. It's that the people who were supposed to be following the procedures of our justice system didn't. They just, they obviously didn't. Like, it's not that in the, in the law book for counties in Wisconsin, it's like, if you're a police officer, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Love George Washington. Like it's, (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you're arguing that it's not it's not necessarily a systemic flaw in our justice system although i'm sure there are some systemic flaws Mm is that in this case as in many other cases it's human beings choosing not to abide by the rules protocols procedures of the system and they're not they're not being sufficient accountability measures to ensure that the system is actually put into play the way it should be Mm mm-hmm so let's go yeah. through some of those. What are some of the things? <laughs> what are some of the things about our justice system? Some of the kind of philosophical underpinnings that of were, our justice system. Yeah, that were vi- <laughs> that that we like, that we're in favor of, that we think are good ideas, uh, mm-hmm. that were kind of violated in this case. And uh, let's talk a little bit about like how they should have actually been played out. Yeah. Okay, so step one, step just step one on a very basic philosophic level, and I think most people just by common sense reasoning would come to this conclusion. When you enter a courtroom, anything that is not presented to the jury, to the judge, to the two prosecutors, to the prosecutor and the defense, should not be in consideration whatsoever. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if you can't, if it doesn't meet procedure to get into the courtroom, then 
it doesn't matter. That's yep. how it should be. So yep. let's say the media makes this huge fear-mongering campaign mm-hmm. and really blames someone for doing something. Mm-hmm. Technically, the jury should try to not think about that at all. Yeah. Because that's, that's not in that's not on the floor. So this case has a ton of these things where it's like some of the jury members know the Avery family and they don't yeah. like them. Yeah. There's like he his family and especially he himself has this kind of negative reputation. Mm-hmm. All the cops already know mm-hmm. kind of the way the cop like I remember the recordings of the police officers when they find her yeah. bones yeah. and just being like, Ooh, like we got him. Like mm-hmm. this kind of like, well, and the, the lead prosecutor who, by the way, is a legendary level douche. And that has been <laughs> uncovered since like his sexting scandal and his mm-hmm. just like all this stuff. Like what, a, what a jackass this guy is. He, um, he said after the trial, he's like, we knew what kind of person Steve, Stephen Avery was going into this trial. Yeah, that should never be. It, that should not happen. So it's like, like what? Like what? Like why do we even hear then? He basically gave a a a like uh, I'm forgetting the word an everyday definition, a layman's definition for the word prejudice. Yeah, which literally means prejudging someone, yeah. judging so beforehand. Like, yeah. Yeah, which is something you do not want to do when you are trying to judge someone. Yeah. So, <laughs> I yeah. mean, by, by saying we already knew something before the trial literally means we are doing not a good job here. Yeah. Okay. So there's that. Um, the second. Well, thing, well and let, let me yeah. add on to that before you. Yeah. The second thing, like the whole you can't submit things that aren't submissible because. You don't want to poison the jury. That's why it was so damaging that the prosecutor shared the story that was coerced out of the nephew with all mm-hmm. the media outlets because it's a small, you know, county in Wisconsin in terms of the population. All the local news outlets were sharing these details, and now they have this picture of this monstrous event that, by the way, was never proven but with physical evidence. Mm-hmm. They have this whole thing in their heads. How is the jury supposed to actually not take that into account now? Oh, yeah. It's a super underhanded move. Like, almost enough to, I mean, in my opinion, kind of move it even closer to a mistrial. Like, the the fact that a DA would go to the media to share something that I'm sure he thought would never be admissible in court, but I guess the judge... Because isn't it does, doesn't don't they use the testimony anyways? Eventually, um, they strike down all the additional charges that are brought about because of the um, because of his nephew's um, testimony. Mm-hmm. But they end up putting the kid in jail based on that testimony, which is just a whole nother yeah, bag that's... of just crap. Yeah. Which I that was the most shocking thing to me. I mean, sorry to spoil it, guys, mm-hmm. if you haven't seen it. But the most shocking, the most shocking thing to me about this whole documentary is that they they use the kids' coerced testimony to try to put him in jail. Yeah, and that it's that the judge is like, okay, sure. So, just to get a little bit more general, um, if we like step back to an even more abstract level, 
Yeah. A lot of how democracies and the idea of fairness comes about is with trying to, it, it, I mean, I, I can't avoid talking, not talking about John Rawls. <laughs> okay, um, let's do it. <laughs> trying to imagine yourself in another person's shoes, basically. Yes. You know? Yes. So, for example, if you were in someone's position, and let's and let's assuming their innocence, even if everyone thinks you're wrong, you know, like well, and basically that's like a Stephen King, like murder horror story. Yeah. Um, everyone assumes you're wrong. Wouldn't you want there to be a system in place that at least gives you a, a chance to prove your innocence? Yeah, it's kind of like the veil of ignorance. Mm-hmm. experiment like how do we establish justice in a society we imagine that if we are all entered into a lottery and we could end up with anybody with anybody's place in society that we wouldn't feel like we got ripped off kind of a thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly so we would want a system with procedures in place to guarantee that you have an ability to prove yourself right you know yeah so a lot of times I hear people, um, some of my like aunts and uncles or other people where there's like these national outrage cases, yeah. you know, so like Casey Anthony mm-hmm. or Sherry Ty- Chivo, is that anything her name? Uh, Terry hus- Chivo. Yeah. Hu- husband mm-hmm. or, um, OJ Simpson's a perfect one too where there's like this huge collective conscious of like, we know these people are wrong. Yeah. You know, and like maybe, you know, a lot of them seem like they really were in in the wrong in those yeah. situations. But we need a system in place in case there really is some type of weird conspiracy happening. Like, for example, if this documentary was about how slick and like manipulative the defense attorneys were yeah. on trying to release this man who obviously murdered this girl. I think there'd be a little bit different, there'd be a different kind of outrage happening. Yeah. You know? Um, And so basically all I'm trying to say with that is all of these weird things that have some like Latin names, like habeas corpus are not admitting doctor testimony and like having these weird rules that seem just to get in the way of like getting the bad guys. Yeah. We're actually there to protect the everyday citizen from, injustice in a lot of ways yeah there's safeguards that were put in place for very thoughtful reasons they're, they're not just sort of random th- like the presumption of innocence is really really important because mm-hmm. presumption presumption of guilt means that the the weight of proof the burden of proof rests upon the defense and it's much harder to prove that you didn't do something than it is to prove that someone did do something like it's much harder and so oh, yeah there's a reason that as there's a reason why as a society we've decided to really have a presumption of innocence. And as in the Stephen Avery case, one of his attorneys said, like there was no presumption of innocence at all. Like, like in the way that the whole thing was being framed and what evidence was kept and, and uh, how the juries uh, had been instructed and and the, the poisoning of the jury pool with the news reports and the, the cops, the way that the cops, uh, you know, were on record as having, responded to the news about the murder and Stephen Avery's involvement in his arrest. Like there was no presumption of innocence. And 
if you'll remember in criminal cases, uh, the case needs to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, mm -hmm. which is a heavy burden of proof compared to civil cases, which is a preponderance of the evidence. So in a civil yeah. case, you need to be 51% right. But in, mm -hmm. in a, in a criminal case, we're probably talking about like 85, 90% like, yeah, this person did it. Yeah. Well, because in a criminal, I mean, in a criminal case, what we're basically doing as a society is we're stripping someone of rights, you know? Yeah. So if someone is proven guilty in a, in a criminal case, we are saying you no longer have the right to freedom. You don't, you don't have, because of what you did, you've given up your basic rights as a citizen in a lot of ways you're yeah. almost no longer a citizen of our country you're a prisoner yeah um, i look at it as the sort of john locke's three three things uh, mm -hmm. like liberty and property mm -hmm. in the way the way i think about it is that in our justice system depending upon how uh, heinous the crime is like to put it in lockean terms how mm -hmm. how great was the was the breach of the social contract yeah. And so for lower level offenses, we fine people and that's taking away their right to private property, right? We're taking mm -hmm. away some of their property for speeding or for a DUI or for something. We go, hey, we're going to take away your right to property. That's you violated the social contract. And as part of the social contract, um, we're punishing you accordingly. Um, and then the next level is liberty. Uh, when you breach the social contract in a way that is egregious, more egregious than just something that we could take away some, some of your property, we punish you by taking away some of your liberty. And that's measured in months or years. So mm -hmm. we'll take away 12 months of your liberty or 18 months of your liberty. And for something that's truly egregious, uh, we'll take away the whole liberty of your whole life, like all of your liberty. Yeah. Like we'll take it away. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, for those for those people who still believe that the death penalty is appropriate in the most extreme breaches of the social contract, then at the very top of that sort of pyramid of taking away your rights is we will literally take away your right to be alive. We take yeah. away your life. So your life, your liberty, your property, those are in, in sort of ascending order, property, liberty, life. That's the, the breach of social contract, the things that can be uh, done to quote unquote remedy that breach of the social contract. That's how I think about it. I, I think that's a great way to think about it. I mean, and, and, and I think what we're doing with these exercises, I think someone could say, well, duh, you know, like obviously, but I think a lot of people forget there's a great like forgetfulness of why we started doing these things in the first place. Yeah. You know, like the presumption of innocence is a perfect one where it's like, the only way, the only real way to prove that you didn't do something is if you have like a completely scientifically verifiable alibi. Yeah. Which, you like know, if like, you had like a video of yourself being on, you know, Good Morning America at the same mm -hmm. time as the murder was committed. Exactly. And it had like a room full of witnesses, which like, so right now, if someone got murdered, I guess I'm on a podcast with a timestamp, so that's not a really good one. But let's say it was a typical day off for me and I was doing laundry in my house by myself. Yeah. And the government said, you murdered this person and I was presumed guilty. There's almost no way for me to prove that I wasn't there. 
Yeah. You know, like there's because and that's just me doing laundry by myself. Well, we should also remember that like these things came out of real problems with the British system, especially Mm -hmm. the way that uh, the British kings and parliament and court system treated uh, colonies. So Mm -hmm. the United States being formerly 13 colonies at, at the outset they had this list of things that they were pretty upset about. And one of them was that they would often, they would uh, hear about people being tried uh, in absentia, which means you're not there. Yeah. Um, Like in England, like they would have a trial, like, and they wouldn't be there or they would like be forced to like be put on a boat and have to go all the way to England to be tried. Mm -hmm. And so that's where things like jurisdictions and habeas corpus, which basically means we have the body. Mm-hmm. So habeas corpus means having the body. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's where those things started because there were these really unfair things happening where people were just being tried or they were being basically imprisoned for months at a time and being forced to go on dangerous journeys in order to be tried by a court yeah. that was outside the jurisdiction of where they lived. And so a mm-hmm. lot of these rules were just historical reactions and philosophical reactions against unjust practices by a distant government against people like, imagine being in a time where there are no planes, trains, automobiles, and some guy who lives six months away, like, gets to take away your life, liberty, or property. That just sucks. Yeah. Well, also, just, like, simple things of, like, habeas corpus, for example, is, it, it's just the most reasonable thing when you look at it from a philosophical point of view, because it's, like, in, in, in its literal meaning we have the body um it it just means that if you don't have like let's say someone is presumed dead but you don't have the body so you don't know how they died or where they died or when they died how could you ever make a case from that you know what i mean yeah because you, you could literally say anything happened anyone could fit into the position of a murderer because you could say, well, this person owns a gun and they were probably shot, even though you don't know if they were shot. Or this person's a known, he loves drowning people and they yeah. were probably drowned. So like, blah, blah, blah. Like there's, without having the body and then in its figurative meaning, without having any type of substantial evidence is really all that is saying. It's just, it, you know, and in, in this case in particular, the corpus, the the body, was found in such a delayed and opaque way, as you mentioned. Like, first we found these bones and they were burned, but then there's blood, but none of her blood, and it's his blood, and we found it in this place, but not in this place. Like, it's just the lack of, like, sustained evidence you know, like all they could basically say from those bones is that she was whatever happened. She at the end of it, someone burned her her corpse up, you know. So, like, even from that point of view, the system is still being like that's still like an iffy part of the system. So, like, on our list of things that didn't didn't happen, one, there was extreme prejudice as admitted by the parties prosecuting him Two, it. There was a very, very, very strong lack of presumed innocence Mm -hmm. going into the case. 
um, which was only heightened by the fact that he had a civil suit up against the county government itself. And then B, the habeas corpus element of it was really spread out and weird and had a bunch of like, why did you find this when you weren't even supposed to be there type elements to it? Um, So we can just see from there that the procedure itself of our justice system was not being upheld. Mm -hmm. So these rallying cries to change the justice system shouldn't be focusing on procedures that have been developed and tested through really ancient Roman law, through kind of the weirdness of absolute monarchy and how they just did mock trials and did whatever they wanted to like the formation of republics. I don't think that procedure is flawed. I think the fact that the ability to just throw that procedure out of it, just out of the way when it seems convenient, that's the real danger. You know what I mean? So the fact that this judge and sorry, loud cars, I apologize, everyone, um, this judge and these prosecutors and this, and this police force, seem to pick and choose what part of our justice procedures could benefit them and which parts would get in the way and then simply moved ahead and then got a conviction. That's the really scary part of it. For me, at least. Yeah. I, I just, I wanted to look at maybe the angles of this that are more personal. And by personal, I mean having to do with persons making Mm -hmm. decisions. And like, we like to pretend that laws, like, for instance, people love to say the phrase like, well, we're not supposed to legislate morality, you know, Mm -hmm. don't legislate morality, but that's, Silly, because all laws are someone's morality having been legislated. Like, all yeah. laws all laws are based upon someone's worldview where they said, this is wrong. Like, this, mm-hmm. ought, this ought not happen. Um, and there might be philosophical rules. It's not, I'm not saying everything's based on whimsy, you know. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, we'll just do what I feel. But it's somebody's view of what's right and what's wrong. And I think that extends to judges, juries, lawyers, the press. And so all of this, you know, contra to, I think our, our legal imaginations, all this is very subjective Mm -hmm. because interpretations of laws, interpretations of what evidence is submissible. I mean, when we watch the making a murder documentary, so many human decisions are made to say certain things, to not say, uh, to not say certain things. Judges have immense power to, submit things to evidence or, or to, to disallow things or to allow certain questions. I mean, anytime someone objects, the judge has to make a subjective decision based upon whether or not they think the procedure of fair questioning is being upheld or being violated. Mm-hmm. And so judges are human beings. Juries are human beings. Uh, media members are human beings. Defense and prosecu- prosecutorial uh, you know, attorneys are human beings. All of these people are human beings. And so there is a real flaw in the way that we do justice in that we have to do it. We have to have humans run it. 
Yeah. That the one of the real flaws of the system, no matter how beautifully designed or no matter how we've learned from history and injustice and no matter how many safeguards we have and appeal systems and all of that stuff, uh, at the end of the day, humans are making these decisions. So if you live in the 1950s, you know, racist small town South mm-hmm. and you're a black man accused of a crime and you're put on trial and you and and a quote jury of your peers are about a bunch of like suburbanite white people. You're screwed. <laughs> That's not a yeah. jury of your peers. You know, like like they're going to think about you differently probably than the people that you're actually, you know, in community with. So that's, you know, that's something to take into consideration and that's why, you know, having watched enough documentaries about the justice system and court cases and stuff like that, you know, I try not to break the law. My wife tries not to break the law. We, you know, anticipate our children being people who try not to break the law but our instructions to our kids will be never ever 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 talk to a police officer under questioning unless you have us and an attorney there yeah ever because once they get a confession from you their people and their job is to try to convict you at least that's their job in their minds Mm -hmm. a lot of the time and it's like they will do anything they can to get a confession out of you yeah and 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 I, I think what this also highlights is taking systems as a whole, as opposed to just trying to extract certain elements from it. So we look back on like ancient Roman Republic politics, you know, and say like, oh, that's a good idea. Habeas corpus is a good idea. Like we, we want this kind of rational uh, court system that isn't, at the whims of like dictators and tyrants and mm-hmm. stuff. Like you can't just imprison somebody for yeah. like a really long time without having like authority to do so. And you have to actually have a reason for keeping someone in prison and bring them before mm-hmm. a court and they have to have their day in court. Like that's all great yeah. stuff. That's all great stuff. And everyone thinks that's great, but the systems that are like kind of in the background of that, that makes those things possible. One of those being a public interest in virtue. Yeah. You know, so like, for example, everyone loves to complain about the corruption in different areas, but I I would be interested to know if you're in a county where judges are elected, do you vote for your judges? You know, like, have you ever done that as a person who complains about this? Honestly, like I'm, I'm in the 99th percentile of educated people and I've never done research on a judge like to, to yeah. vote for them or against them. So I am so guilty on this. Like I do research on everything. I do research on what furniture I'm going to buy. I do research on like what kind of car I, I do research mm-hmm. on what kind of soap I want to use. And I've never really done a deep dive on the judges that I'll be voting for. And so I am completely a hypocrite on this because it's just, it's not something I think about. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, like, I need to elect these judges who are the right people. And, like, I need my vote. Count. And, like, how many people vote for a judge? It can't be that Ex- many. Exactly. I mean, that's my question. And even if you did, like, what are you voting for? You know, and, like, and that's the whole idea of public virtue. And I think it is especially bears a lot of weight with someone like a judge who yeah. you're, you're basically voting for someone. I mean, you do this too with your legislators, but you're voting for someone because you think they have a good, do you think they're wise basically? Well, you think like, they have the, the virtue of prudence. 
mm-hmm. you think they have prudence. You think that they can tell the difference between a wise and an unwise decision and that they will be fair. Absolutely. Because Which is crazy. Yeah. Because in our system, like you said, you know, like if we ever had machine court cases, which sounds, again, very dystopic, um, there would still be elements. Not guilty. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Like in our system as it is, it's like we want judges that have a good mind about them that when someone says, you know, objection, but it's actually even though in the letter of the law, it might actually be an objection, but in the spirit of the case, it needs to be overruled or it needs to be upheld. That's a decision of discretion on that, on that individual based on that individual's character, you know? So when a lot of times when morality and ethics are kind of looked as these like funny things that are fun to think about, but don't really matter when it comes, when it comes to like, which is like the fact that ethics is the discipline of justice. And we think that it has almost no bearing on our criminal justice system. I don't even, I don't, I like, I don't even know how that works. Yeah. Yeah. I've asked this question as an ethicist. I've asked this question again and again and again. And even with my fellow guild members who are professional ethicists who hold PhDs in ethics, just asking the question, all right, how ought ethics translate into law? What is the relationship between ethics and law? It's something Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to spend years on um, just really crafting my own philosophy of how ethics ought to relate to law because I don't believe it's a simple answer like, oh, everything that's unethical should be illegal. No, it's not. But at the same time, when I'm at a party with my wife and her musician friends and people ask me, what do you do? And I say, I'm an ethicist. Most people give me like a blank stare. Yeah. Like why in the world would someone be an ethicist? Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, I know we're kind of like, you know, showing our laurels here as someone who's interested in philosophy and someone who's interested in ethics. But I, I get really frustrated when I will be at a party and people will get a little tipsy or whatever. Mm-hmm. And someone will start waxing political about Ferguson or Edward Snowden or, yeah. you know, some issue. And they talk about how the system is so like calcified and dead. And there's people in the system who just simply aren't thinking about things. And, you know, there's not this element of like, it's just unreasonable. Like they do that a lot. But then when I say like, Oh, you know, I got an undergraduate degree in philosophy. It's like, well, what are you doing for society? It's like the next jump. So it's like this weird thing of like, we complain that there's a lack of like philosophical, ethical thinking in our Mm -hmm. government, but on the same hand, also encourage people to not pursue those disciplines. Like useless. Yeah. So that to me is what is like really strange. It's like, so would you rather our politicians be successful businessmen or retired generals? And like that, you think like, isn't that what you're complaining about? <laughs> like, yeah, for, th- for yeah. me, it's like, there's this quote from the HBO miniseries, John Adams, uh, about when John Adams and Thomas Jefferson get very old after they've both been president and they, they both died like at a very old age. Mm-hmm. Like they were like in their, maybe they were 90 or something. 
On the same day. On the same day, which is weird. Fourth of July. Yes, which is yeah. <laughs> bizarre. Yeah. And they were pen pals in their later years, and they just wrote back and forth, and because Thomas Jefferson had that weird thing that could write a copy of a letter, mm-hmm. they have copies of you know a lot of his letters and stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, some some character, I forget who it was, some younger person is talking about you know, the revolution and how important Washington was and how important Franklin was and how important all the delegates were and the soldiers. And, uh, but, but he, he says regarding Adams and Jefferson who represent like the two poles of sort of Jefferson is the every man populist Liberty, um, you know, believes in people grassroots being able to remake for themselves justice from time to time. And, John Adams, on the other hand, is the person who's saying he, he's always cautious and he's always like, we need strong laws and strong government because, you know, if men were angels, there'd be no need for for government. So he's mm-hmm. arguing for like the sort of more authoritarian side, kind of, and the more traditional mm-hmm. side, more English side, certainly. And Jefferson's mm-hmm. arguing for the more kind of French revolution side. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the character says of, of Jefferson and Adams, like, you you too, you thought for us, you, you know, yeah. more than anything else, you thought for us while the rest of us were, were putting together this revolution and didn't have the capacity or the time or the resources or the talent you thought on behalf of the rest of us. Like that is the place of philosophy. That is the place of ethics. That's the place of law where, you know, next time someone asks me what I do at a party, I should probably, instead of saying I'm an ethicist, I should say, I think about how to talk and I think about how to think and I think about how to make decisions. Yeah. And I try to help people to think, talk and make decisions because that's the the essence of philosophy and, and ethics as a branch of philosophy is people have to make decisions all the time and people have to decide what kind of people they want to be and they have to decide what the rules of engagement are, whether that's for discourse or for action or for participation in the marketplace, or for politics, or for cultural engagement. And our job is to help them think through and make decisions about how they're going to do that. And I think that's the heart of what philosophy brings to the table as as a set of disciplines. And I think that's why it's so important for us to talk about things like the justice system, because people's lives are at stake. Yeah. Like we should be able to walk into a courtroom and go, that's not, that process is an unfair process. That is not a process that's reflective of the word justice. Mm -hmm. It's not a a process that's reflective of care, concern, that Rawlsian idea of putting myself in the place of the other behind a veil of ignorance and saying, if I were Stephen Avery, this is how I would want this trial to go. Or if I were a Democratic senator under a Republican president, I would not want the president to be able to do X, Y, and Z, just like if I were a Republican senator under, you know, or a reverse, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Like, I would want processes to be stable. Yeah. Well, and I and I, I think what you're hitting on is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is the idea, um, or, or just, you know, just a quick thought experiment to kind of, show what I'm thinking, I guess, but when we, especially in a, in a court environment, just thinking about the words we use, like, you know, 
proven within reasonable doubt that are fair and unfair or justice being served or corruption or any of those things. Who's... Oh, can I add one? Can I yeah. add one? Mm-hmm. This was this was uh, said a lot in the uh, the courtroom for the Stephen Avery trial. Common sense. Mm-hmm. Common sense are being reasonable. Like when when people hear these terms, do like what domain do they think they are now entering? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. When like, you say the phrase "common sense." You just entered my world. So so let's talk about what common sense actually means if you're going to use it in a courtroom. When you say the phrase common sense, you're making a claim about reality that needs to be talked about, that needs to be unpacked, that needs to be verified. So when someone in a courtroom says the phrase common sense, like it's necessary for everyone to be on the same page about what exactly that means. Yeah. And, and, and this isn't just a plug for philosophic literacy, but I, I think it at least shows the effects of philosophic illiteracy. Yeah. You know, when, when, when it's considered trivial or a hobby to think of things like, when I say common sense, like when that person doesn't have any common sense, what am I actually talking about? The fact that a majority of people don't know how to even like ask that question, but then also have really strong opinions on police brutality and legislative matters yeah and well i know people like who that. i know people who happen to live in the pacific northwest mm-hmm. and who say things like well everybody should just be able to do what they want because there's no real right or wrong and then they get outraged about police mis- mistreatment of african-americans i'm yeah. like you can you can consistently believe in one of those things yeah but I, I think what it's showing is that the idea of consistency as like a baseline is that is even missing. Yeah. You know, like everybody can do what they want or you can be outraged by things <laughs> like both of those things cannot coexist. Yeah. And you could have a very, very, very liberal democratic view of things and have a consistent opinion, which is everyone should do should be able to do what they want as long as it doesn't you know, destroy another person's life or take away their ability to do what they want. Yeah. Um, which it's just that single commitment, which I guess some people just aren't willing to make. Yeah. Um, it's, there's just an, there's a, there's like a black hole or a void. Well, it's because people, people want to have like pure ideologies. I think sometimes where they go, well, this is just a rule like that I follow, like everyone should be able to do what they want. Because if you start saying that's one value system is better than the other, then like that just doesn't ring true to who I am. Because like at the end of the day, once you say you can do whatever you want, as long as you don't destroy another person's life, then you have to go to definitions of about what kinds of things qualify as destroying another person's life. Yeah. And that's where, that's where argumentation comes in, which is how, philosophy operates like what's the difference between vehicular manslaughter and secondhand smoke exactly or a a one a a topic that i think deserves a lot of good argument which is the abortion debate which is basically a discussion of at its most fundamental is an is an unborn child is a fetus is is that a person who has rights you know 
But because that type of philosophical thinking is just completely absent from the majority population, it turns into two sides saying things that are on the surface very reasonable, which is one side saying, well, of course, it's a person and you're a murderer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, which if it is a person, then yes, I guess that's kind of true. Just definitionally. Yeah. And then on the other side saying, well, it's obviously not a person. And this is about a woman having control of her own body. Yeah. Which if it's not a person, then definitionally that is super duper right. Yeah. But because no one's willing to have the actual argument, which is a really weird metaphysical when does personhood start? Mm -hmm. Should we evaluate it from the side of... Well, and people aren't even very good with words and phrases. Like I remember uh, Marco Rubio was being interviewed by uh, Andrew Cuomo on on Andrew Cuomo's... um, His father was governor of New York. His brother was governor of New York. And he's like Mm -hmm. a newscaster on CNN. And he kept on coming back at Marco Rubio. And Rubio's a pretty smart dude. And Rubio was saying, human life begins at conception. Mm-hmm. He was being very careful. He, he didn't say personhood begins at conception because it's a very complex argument. He was saying, yeah. scientifically, there is a consensus that human life begins at conception. It's mm-hmm. a new DNA combination that's never existed before. It is of the species that we call humans. It is a life, therefore human life begins at conception. And Andrew Cuomo was like flabbergasted. He was like, you can't say that. That's not scientific. You're, you mm-hmm. know, like, and, and Marco Rubio kept, kept saying human life begins at conception. And it's because one of them was being very careful about their definitions. Mm-hmm. And the other one was thinking that, the definite, like basically, Andrew Cuomo thought that Marco Rubio was saying human life equals personhood. Yes, and R- Rubio was doing that on purpose rhetorically because most people will take the phrase human life and go and, and say, "Oh, personhood," mm-hmm. which are two very different things philosophically. Yeah. But rhetorically, it's a good move to make because basically you're making a very simple argument that does have scientific consensus among the entire medical scientific community. Where you say, hey, when does human life begin? It begins when there's a new zygote, you know, and then to transfer that into the popular imagination through the argument of human life is pretty similar to personhood um, without even having to say that, right? It's an implicit argument. Yeah. But the fact that the two men were not both very carefully literate about the terms they were using, it meant they were just talking past each other. Yeah. A much more fruitful debate and with people who are like, better at debating, I guess, would just be, okay, but that doesn't mean personhood, so we're not arguing about that yet, you know? Yeah, and if so, Andrew Cuomo knew his stuff, he would have said that. He would have said, yeah. Senator Rubio, I appreciate your argument that human life begins at conception, but are you saying that human life is the same thing as personhood? That was the question that needed to be asked for the conversation to move yeah. forward. All right, so we've talked about this documentary. We've talked about some of these weird things that happened in this one case. We've talked about some of the weird things about our justice system that are good and how they can go wrong and how they're based upon human understanding and where philosophy and ethics comes into play. So there's a lot going on here, but what do we do with all of this? I mean, this is so much for the average listener who probably isn't a lawyer or a judge or an ethicist or or a philosopher. What are some of the take-homes for you in in this discussion about our justice system? Yeah. I think the biggest one that we hit on 
today was the importance of a clear head. Okay. Um, which sounds very vague. Um, but so much of the, of the things that went wrong in this particular case and on a much bigger level, um, in our entire like political system is the fact of people not behaving the way they should be behaving in their positions. Okay. So Um, just basically people not doing their job. Yeah. And instead of looking at police brutality or corrupt judges or senators being completely controlled by lobbyists, all of those things are not, maybe it is a problem with the system that we don't have more safeguards against those things. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's a very valid argument to make. And perhaps we should introduce legislation that curtails some of those oopsies. Yeah. Um, but the idea being that our entire system is just corrupted from the beginning to the end is, is not true. Um, and that really what it comes down to is like, if that judge, you know, was thinking clearly and was thinking reasonably doing his job, doing his job, I think the fact that the prosecution alerted the media to information, the fact that the jury was already kind of Mm -hmm. in a weird position in terms of personal Mm -hmm. bias, all of those have to go into, into thinking Mm -hmm. that, wow, maybe this should at least be a mistrial, you know? Yeah, I would would put it this way. I think probably 50 or 60 years ago, people thought about corrupt judges on a personal level of analysis. So when you do philosophical, legal, political analysis, you can do it at several different levels. You can do it at a personal level. You can do it at a civic level, a state level, a national level, a systemic level. And I really do think, and this isn't, I hope this is not just me coming off as some right, right, right wing nut job, but the Marxist approach to analysis, which is a class or system based approach, I think has really impacted the way we think about things like corruption. And I think over the Mm -hmm. last 50 or 60 years, that has kind of trickled down into even our pop cultural consciousness, where we're more likely to think about systems as being corrupt than we are to think about people being bad at their jobs. Yeah. Because 50, 60 years ago, people would have said, well, that's a bad judge. But now we're like, you know, it's just the institutions, you know, and the corruption and the, you know, systemic racism. And it's like, those are all Marxist terms of analysis, which can be very helpful. And I think we can use as a, to balance out, like, there are just bad people who did this. And that's why they wore in Iraq haven't, you know? Yeah. I'm I'm not saying go back to how it used to be where we just said, well, George H.W. Bush didn't like Saddam Hussein, you know, (laughs) like I'm I'm not I'm not saying that. But I am saying I think sometimes we can over systematize our analysis so that we missed we missed the trees for the forest. You know, we we miss the hey, that's a bad judge. Those people should probably elect a better judge. Hey, like (laughs) that 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 prosecution attorney was a was a skis ball who was a liar who was mm-hmm. sexting and holding, you know, his position over young battered women. And that came out a few years after this trial. Like that's a real thing. That's not a systemic issue. That's a, that yeah. guy's an asshole issue. Yeah. So I think sometimes we have to like take off our system 
glasses. And, and I'm saying this with so much passion because a lot of my friends who are ethicists, they always want to go to the system level immediately. And I think sometimes it's not just a systemic problem. I think sometimes it's a problem with, and obviously, like you said, there are safeguards that can be put in systemically, which are actually hard because people ultimately have to enforce them. Right. This, yeah. this comes back to people. We are a law of, uh, we are a nation of laws and not men, but men still have to enforce the laws. So I don't know where, where that leaves us. But I think if, if every time you go to analyze something, you always go to the systemic level, I think you're falling into a trap. Yeah. And I, I think it just comes back to balance and being able to see a synthesis of two things. Um, just in terms of like, you know, is it, is it genetics or is it environment? Well, we are kind of learning that it's kind of both, you know. Tell me and more, Hegel. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same with this discussion of individual responsibility and corrupt ideology that has like a system behind it. Obviously, there are systems in place, institutions in place that are unjust and need to either be dismantled or reformed. I don't think anyone's arguing against that. But I agree with you, the lack, the, I think what it is, is people don't want there to be a lone gunman, you know? Well, they, people, people don't, like, we've moved away from human agency in our analysis. Mm -hmm. We've moved so much towards systems analysis and natural causation and a world, a closed system in which everything has like, a, oh, he did that because he was poor. Poverty causes crime. We don't want yeah. cultural explanations. We don't want personal explanations. We don't want the problem of human agency to enter into the equation. We don't want to talk about evil. Like those are things that we're uncomfortable with because they sound so stupid. They sound so unscientific. We want mm -hmm. everything to have a material cause. And that really is the influence of Marxism upon our society. Yeah. And, and I, I would like to say that just to really cover our grounds, I do think a lot of things like police brutality and the corruption in Senate politics and the House politics is a systemic issue. Yes, there but, are definitely systemic issues. Yeah. But, the, but another really huge thing is that there are people who allowed that to happen in the first place. Yeah. And... Well, like you think, say all the yeah. time, you say, you say that like monarchy would be great if we had great Kings. Yeah. Right. Like monarchy mm -hmm. is a system that's open to a lot of corruption. And so it's a, it's a bad system, but it would work if you had great Kings. Yeah. If there's a way to ensure that every single person who gained the authority of a monarch was like going to not be an eagle maniacal, insane human being then sure, it would be, I would love for everything to be a monarchy. Like Plato wasn't a complete idiot to suggest philosopher kings as a way to run society, right? I mean, there, yeah. there's something to that. And even in our culture, like I, like this, this comes into a different podcast that we could have sometime about elitism, but like, I want my neurosurgeon to be elite. Oh, Absolutely. Like, and I'd like I, the people I, running the government yeah. to not just be like farmers. Yeah. Or if they are farmers that they, that they transcend that, you know, like I don't want anyone in government to be too involved in limited to any sphere. You know what I mean? That's like I don't, 
Yeah, so it's not just it's not just like oh, some podunk farmer is. A, I have nothing against farmers job. if they're Abraham yeah. Lincoln. Yeah, you know, so, if they taught themselves the law. Yeah, and I I think that is the big thing. I think we get lured into this refresh, like it's like a refreshing feeling to be like this person is a, um, you know, he owns. Let's say Elon Musk ran, ran for something. I'm sure people would be like, look at what a good job he's done with all these other things. And for me, it's just like, yeah, but does he have, it, is he a man of virtue? Which sounds so ridiculous. But Nick, can he like, get things done? Yeah. Does he have Which, large buildings with his name on them? That's, that's my biggest thing is like, can he get things done? And I think people are just not willing to ask what things, you mm -hmm. know, like I'm sure he can get things done. I'm more interested in knowing what things he's going to get done. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should and, ask, you know, what all this getting things done is actually leading yeah. towards. And I mean, I kind of hinted at it um, with the lone gunman, like kind of reference, but it's, I think this is most clearly when there's this huge need for like giant, conspiracies which is basically saying what looks like individual um decisions are actually the byproduct of these giant clandestine operations that yeah. only the smartest amongst us can put the pieces together to find well the truth and, is out there nick yeah you know which is it's just it's an inability to think you know what maybe someone was really in love with jody foster for whatever godforsaken reason and tried to shoot ronald reagan you know like maybe that's what happened and maybe he didn't work for the lizard men or the illuminati you know well we're just gonna have to leave that as an open question yeah. for now. you guys do your research please <laughs> look it up tweet at me your theories and oh, yeah. we're gonna have to do a whole episode on conspiracy theories at some point but oh for sure um next week speaking of episodes next week we're going to be talking about the oscars we're going to be talking about the academy awards we're going to be talking about some of the philosophical things um sort of underpinning that things like math things like race relations politics the value of art uh, peer recognition. There's a lot of different things. It's kind of a grab bag issue. We thought it would be fun because Oscar, the Oscar nominations have come out. Uh, we'll talk about the people who were snubbed. We'll talk about some of the controversies surrounding them. And we'll get into like a, a bunch of really interesting issues that surround, you know, what is an award? What does it actually mean? What do we think it should mean? And, um, you know, how does it interact with things like identity politics, which is always a fun uh, a fun subject but for now for this week this has been ryan and nick and you'll hear from us next week yeah bye <laughs> bye bye <laughs>